The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdooney. My prayer is that you will be strengthened by these readings. The insight in which Mr. Rushdooney had is significant, not only then, but in today's day as well. But in no way should it replace your own studies in the Scriptures. And I do pray that you will take what you learn and apply it to every area of your life and thought. Discontinuity and Antinomianism Chalcedon Position Paper Number 59 From the days of the early church to the present, a variety of heresies and opinions have contributed to the development of modern antinomianism. In our previous position papers, some of these have been discussed. It is important now to look at the American influences and other modern philosophies which have gone into the modern formulation of this concept. In the early years of the Republic, the pressures of English deism led to a progressive de-emphasis on the Old Testament. For the deist, the Old Testament was a primitive religious expression of the ancient Hebrews having no love for their contemporary Jews. The deists were not disposed to view their Hebrew forebears favorably. The results became apparent in a lessened interest in the Old Testament, whereas earlier the Puritans had seen the whole Bible as the binding word of God. Now, as J. Flegelman has noted in Prodigals and Pilgrims, 1982, quote, the Bible was slowly becoming identified with the New Testament alone, unquote. From 1777 to 1800, there were only 33 American editions of the whole Bible but nearly 80 separate printings of the New Testament. This was a break with the Puritan love of the whole Word of God. At the same time, the Baptists were waging a dual attack on the old order. First, and rightly so, they fought against the establishment of any church in favor of the establishment of Christianity as the faith undergirding the social order. 
Second, because the other churches stressed the continuity between circumcision and infant baptism, the Baptists attacked the validity of this continuity by denying the continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. Instead of a renewed covenant in Christ with a new Israel of God, a new chosen people, the Baptists insisted on two covenants of differing characteristics. This assault was followed by a more deadly one, by the Unitarians. William Ellery Channing in 1819 preached the ordination sermon for Jared Sparks in Baltimore, Maryland. On that occasion, Channing attacked the Calvinist and declared that, quote, the dispensation of Moses, unquote, was very different from the new one and had been, quote, adapted to the childhood of the human race, unquote. The Bible thus represented two very different dispensations of religion. Ralph Waldo Emerson went further. In an address to the senior class in divinity at Harvard, he attacked, quote, the assumption that the age of inspiration is past, that the Bible is closed, unquote. He insisted that men need no mediator and that all of us can become, quote, bards of the Holy Ghost, unquote. In, quote, uses of great men, unquote, Emerson insisted that a, quote, rotation, unquote, or change of dispensations, quote, is the law of nature, unquote, and added, quote, nor can the Bible be closed until the last great man is born, unquote. During this time, the idea of cultural evolution was being advanced, and later it was applied to biology. The influence of evolutionary thinking on dispensationalism was real, despite the fact that at a later date, evolutionary and dispensational thought separated and clashed. Another powerful influence was the philosopher Hegel. In Hegel's thought, a variety of ancient pagan strands resurfaced, among them the belief in the conflict of interest as necessary to progress, whereas biblical faith asserts the harmony of interest because of the governing and predestinating hand of God. Non-biblical faiths see order evolving out of a conflict of interests. These pagan ideas had long plagued Christian thought, but never so much as after Hegel, whose influence was decisive throughout Christendom and especially so in Germany. Hegel came into biblical studies very plainly in the work of Ferdinand Christian Bauer. As Hans Konzelman noted in An Outline of the Theology of the New Testament, 1969, and noted with approval, Bauer, quote, interprets Paul with the basic concepts of Hegel, unquote. What this meant was that Scripture was no longer seen as unified whole, as the one word of God. From beginning to end, the Bible was now seen as a war of ostensibly true ideas and factors. In Paul especially, this warfare was supposedly sharpest. Flesh is for Paul by presupposition and antithesis to spirit. Law is opposed to grace, mercy to judgment, love to wrath, and so on. The Bible was now seen as a divided book and, by implication, God was divided and in conflict with himself. God had one plan of salvation for the Jews, another for the Christians. Such ideas were not new. As heresies, they had long plagued the church and often influenced the Orthodox. 
Now, however, such antinomian and dispensational ideas represented, quote, the latest scholarship, unquote. Biblical studies began to major in dividing the word and in seeing one writer as opposed to another or in conflict with himself. It became, quote, good scholarship, unquote, to see error and division in the Bible. Martin Debellius in James, a commentary, 1976, held that because Christians, quote, were living in expectation of the end of the world, they had neither the inclination nor the ability to initiate an ethical renewal of a world which seemed to be doomed for destruction, unquote. How a commentator on James could make such a statement is amazing. It is a witness to the triumph of scholarship over reality. This is not all. Another and revolutionary influence which came to focus in the United States was a hostility to continuity. America was to be, quote, the new order of the ages, unquote, a totally new dispensation. The Old Testament era was, quote, primitive, unquote, Europe was, quote, backward, unquote, but America was to be the new, quote, course of empire, unquote, and a new age and a new world. Many deists in Europe shared this view and adored Franklin as an example of the new free man. Jefferson was hostile to the past in the same way and believed that family and continuity were impediments. As he wrote to John Adams on October 28, 1813, he believed the human race should be scientifically bred like animals with superior men, like himself, given harems, quote, not for the sake of pleasure, unquote, but to breed. For the same reason, hostility to continuity, Jefferson affirmed in another letter, September the 4th, 1823, his belief in perpetual revolution to destroy the past and create Jefferson's imagined paradise. He knew that so radical a revolution as he wanted was mass murder, quote, yet the object or goal is worth rivers of blood and years of desolation, unquote. The Adams-Jefferson letters. Jefferson's great hatred was reserved for Calvinism, which he called demonism. Jefferson made respectable the belief in discontinuity, since his Unitarianism, while suspected by some, was not public knowledge. His influence among churchmen was extensive, and he carried their votes easily. Jefferson did popularize the belief that the United States has to break with the past and sons with their fathers. Jefferson hated the power of birth and inheritance, an example the ability of men to begin with an inherited advantage. John Adams said of Plato, but with an eye on Jefferson, quote, no man expressed so much terror of the power of birth. His genius could invent no remedy or precaution against it, but a community of wives, a confusion of families, a total extinction of all relations of father, son, and brother, unquote. It is not an accident that all radical movements from the ancient Mazdakites to Marxists have tried to destroy the family. In the United States, this Jeffersonian anti-familiarism has meant a hostility to sons of successful men. Is a wealthy industrialist the son of a rich founding father? Then it is assumed that the son is only successful because of his inheritance. The fact is that very often, not always, 
The son advances what the father began. The belief in discontinuity plus envy directed against ability leads to the hostility. To cite a very specific current example from within the church, Frankie Schaefer, son of Francis Schaefer, is regularly the target of hostile comments in and out of print. These sanctimonious hypocrites attack Frank with a show of sadness and regret because he is supposedly not up to his father's abilities and name. The fact is that Frank Schaefer begins where his father left off in the Christian manifesto and builds logically and very ably on that foundation. His work is a step forward and in excellent continuity with his father's work. Two motives are at work against him. First, those who lack the courage to attack his father are now piously bleeding about a supposed, quote, decline, unquote. Second, the old hostility against continuity is at work. There must be no inheritance of wealth, ability, or status for these men. The Jeffersonian hatred of continuity is very much with us. Such a view is essential to antinomianism. Law means continuity. It means that God has an established order in all of history. The sins of the fathers have an effect on the children, and the mercy of God upon the fathers is also felt by the children. The past is not dead. It is alive in all of history. Because God's law governs, ordains, and uses all things. Because the wages of sin are always death, History can only change within a God-given framework of curses or blessings. Men have no other options than those given by the triune God and set forth in His law word. The idea of revolution of discontinuity is to overthrow the force, power, and government of God's law to break the bonds of God's rule, Psalm 2. The Mazdakites in 451 AD sought to eradicate the past by enforcing the communism of wealth, women, and land, and killing Christians, among them a hostage, Isaac Rushdoony. But they ended by destroying their realm. Today, state schools are a great weapon of discontinuity, well-tooled to destroy the family. Those who resist state control of education are taken to court on criminal charges. Within the church, all these currents of thought had an extensive influence. The Unitarians, like Channing, dismissed the Old Testament and its law as a primitive dispensation for the ancient Hebrews. They also dismissed Puritan Calvinism as an old and barbarous era, as clinging to a dispensation well left behind. The believer, in his devotional life, was encouraged to concentrate on the New Testament and the Psalms. Alexander Campbell attacked the law and called for, quote, New Testament Christianity, unquote. Such thinking was seeping into all churches, although Southern Presbyterians resisted it until 1869. The church was abandoning the Bible of Jesus Christ. In 1970, Bible believers in the U.S. numbered at least one-fourth of the population, enough to command the country, but most of them did not vote and regarded politics as, quote, a dirty business, unquote. They failed to appreciate the fact that their retreat had made it so. Not surprisingly, the persecution of churches, Christian schools, and homeschools soon began. The God of the law was now the state, not the Lord God of Scripture. In one state, 
where such persecutions have taken place, a Christian attorney called attention to the dereliction and surrender of some churches. As a result, six pastors banded together in an effort to force the attorney out of town. Newsweek, February 4, 1985, called attention to the epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases now said to number, quote, 25 or so diseases, unquote, which in fact, quote, one in four Americans between the ages of 15 and 55 at some point in his or her life, unquote. Serious as this is, it does not compare in its harm to the damage done by antinomianism. If God's law does not govern man, the state's law will. And the state's law is Genesis 3, 5, writ large, every man, or civil government, as his own God, determining for himself what is good and evil. It is time to ask churchmen plainly, who is on the Lord's side? Let him serve the king and honor his law. February 1985 The Privatization of Morality and Social Decay Calcedon Position Paper Number 60 One of the errors of the rationalistic temper in our times and earlier has been its depreciation of both religion and history. The assumption too often has been, as with Hegel, that, quote, the rational is the real, unquote. In example, what a man who sees himself as rational conceives to be reasonable has at least a logical inevitability, if not an historical reality. To confuse the ideal with the real leads to the brutalities of modern revolutionary history as men force their rational, quote, realities, unquote, onto masses of men. A rationalistic approach is non-historical. Thus, early Protestants catalog instances of Catholic persecutions to give a picture of Catholicism which did no justice to history, and Catholics wrote similar works on Protestants. Such approaches have little historical value. They express a bias, not an understanding. To understand the First Amendment, we must ask why it is a product of Christendom and not of some other religion and its culture. Greco-Roman cultures did not allow the freedoms we take for granted. In antiquity, either the state, the ruler, or the office was seen as divine, as God walking on earth a la Hegel. Rome, for example, was the most, quote, liberal, unquote, of ancient orders. But Rome saw religion as a necessary social cement and hence to be strictly controlled and regulated. All religions had to be licensed and governed by the state. And the conflict with Christianity was over this issue, the refusal of the church to submit to control. This refusal was born of Old Testament faith. God's realm is to be beyond man's control. The great victory of this faith against an alien power is set forth in Ezra 7. The agreement of the Persian monarchy to refrain from taxing, regulating, or controlling the temple of Jerusalem and the practitioners of its religion, even to the porters and doorkeepers of the temple. Later, Rome gave to Judea substantially the same immunity, although controlling the elections of high priest. The church inherited this immunity until the Jewish-Roman War of 66 through 70 AD and fought for the totality of it thereafter. During much of medieval history, despite the problems of dealing with newly converted barbarians, this freedom existed to a degree, 
but the states of Europe and the Holy Roman Empire sought to reestablish the patterns of control. We miss the meaning of medieval religion if we fail to see it as a long history of struggle with the state in the main controlling and using the church. The state is patterned from pagan antiquity through the centuries and well into the Christian era has been religious toleration. In religious toleration, the state proscribes certain faiths and establishes and regulates others. This was the goal of medieval and modern states. In legal toleration, the state determines which groups will be tolerated. Toleration is also the premise of the U.S. Internal Revenue Service, the federal government, and most states. Tolerance and establishment go together because the act of defining the limits of toleration is the establishment of licit religion. As against this, the American pattern represented a major break with past civil standards and a return to biblical requirements. Two things in particular marked the constitutional settlement. First, the word sovereignty was completely avoided. It was held then and later that sovereignty is an attribute of God alone. Second, the U.S. broke with the toleration establishment pattern to place itself entirely outside the field of religion. Religion was recognized to be an independent sphere from the state, and neither church nor state are to have jurisdiction over one another in federal policy. The First Amendment thus set forth religious freedom, not toleration. At the same time, however, Enlightenment thought held that religion and morality could be separated and that non-religious grounds could be found for moral law. By this, they really meant non-theistic grounds, in example, rationalistic and humanistic grounds. They were thus separating theistic religion from morality, not humanistic religion. George Washington spoke against this opinion in his farewell address, saying, quote, And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle, unquote. No human freedom is or can be absolute, and the same is true of religious freedom. This fact came into focus in the case of United States versus Reynolds, 98 United States Reports, 145, wherein the U.S. Supreme Court said in part concerning the Mormon practice of polygamy in relation to the First Amendment, quote, Congress was deprived of all legislative power over mere opinion, but was left free to reach actions which were in violation of social duties or subversive of good order. There never has been a time in any state in the Union when polygamy was not an offense against society, cognizable by the civil courts and punishable. It is impossible to believe that the constitutional guarantee of religious freedom was intended to prohibit legislation in respect to this most important element in social life, marriage. While from its nature the sacred obligation is nevertheless in most civilizations, a civil contract, and usually regulated by law. Laws are made for the government of actions, and while they cannot interfere with mere religious belief, 
they may with practices. Suppose one religiously believed that human sacrifices were a necessary part of religious worship. Would it be seriously contended that the civil government could not interfere to prevent sacrifices? Can a man excuse his practices because of his religious belief? To permit this would be to make the doctrines of religion superior to the law of the land, and in effect would be to permit every citizen to become a law unto himself. Government could exist only in name. It matters not that his belief was part of his religion. It was still a belief and a belief only. Unquote. This decision recognized clearly the nature and dimensions of the problem. No civil government can exist where there is a total freedom of religion. Among the practices found in some religions are ritual prostitution, murder, human sacrifice, cannibalism, incest, bestiality, and much, much more. All these and other practices have at one time or another been established by some civil order, great or small. To grant total religious liberty is to deny the possibility of civil government. On the other hand, in United States versus Reynolds, the Supreme Court avoided the problem George Washington had called attention to, the false separation of religion and morality. The court called monogamous marriage, quote, the sacred obligation, unquote. But this was Reynolds' contention that polygamy was for him a sacred obligation. On what ground could the court limit the sacredness to monogamy? The answer is an obvious one. The court presupposed the validity of Christian morality and saw it as alone having a licit status. Washington had called attention to an ancient bit of knowledge and wisdom which the 18th century had called into question, namely that all law represents a moral order, and every concept of moral order is a matter of religious faith and expression. Laws prescribe certain kinds of actions to protect thereby other and licit behavior. Every law, whether it is civil, criminal, or procedural, represents a vision of moral order which the lawmakers and courts seek to approximate and attain. That vision of legal moral order is a religious vision. Every legal system is thus an establishment of religion, inescapably so. This does not mean the establishment of a church, but of a religion, a very different thing. Such an establishment does not approve of a particular form of theology, but simply of the religion in question as the moral foundation of the state. It was this that Justice Joseph Story had in mind when he spoke of Christianity as the foundation of our legal and social order. He held Christianity to be a part of the common law. The sociologist Eugene Rosenstock Husey saw the common law itself as a Christian product. In 1955, John C.H. Wu, in Fountain of Justice, commented on this question thus, quote, The question has often been asked if Christianity is a part of the common law. It depends on what you mean by Christianity. If you mean a revealed religion, a faith as defined by the Apostles' Creed, it is not a part of the common law in the sense that you are legally bound to believe it. Christianity as a faith comes into the courts, not as a law, but as a fact to be taken judicial notice of on a par with other facts of common knowledge. On the other hand, 
If you mean by Christianity the fundamental moral precepts embodied in its teachings, it is a part of the common law in the sense that all the universal principles of justice written in the heart of every man are a part thereof. Unquote. In this sense, there is a common concern in both church and state. The political scientist James McKellen in Joseph's story in the American Constitution, 1971, held, quote, At bottom, church and state are forever united. Their total separation impossible, unquote. Page 126. Church and state are not united in any institutional or legal sense, but in a common concern on common moral premises for a particular form of moral order. The freedom recognized by the First Amendment serves to enable both church and state to work with greater independence and vigor for that moral order. Basic to that freedom is the belief that sovereignty does not reside in the human sphere, but in God alone. It follows, therefore, that no human agency, such as church and state, can claim exclusive or total jurisdiction. Totalitarianism is a consequence of non-theistic doctrines of sovereignty. If God alone is Lord or sovereign, God alone has total jurisdiction over all things. The absence of a doctrine of sovereignty in the Constitution made the First Amendment possible. The rise of the doctrine of federal sovereignty is now threatening the First Amendment. Only a true doctrine of lordship or sovereignty can turn the present drift into totalitarianism around. Only then can we counteract what Judge Robert H. Bork in Tradition and Morality in Constitutional Law, 1984, called, quote, constitutional nihilism, unquote. We must remember, however, that constitutional nihilism has its roots in moral nihilism. Gertrude Hemmelfarb, in the February 1985 Commentary, Volume 79, Number 2, writes on, quote, From Clapham to Bloomsbury, A Genealogy of Morals, unquote. The Bloomsbury Circle, which included the economist Keynes, Virginia Woolf, Lytton Strachey, and others derived its premises from the philosophy of G.E. Moore. Moore not only separated religion and morality, but implicitly made both unnecessary, so that as some of his followers soon saw the problems of society were simply technical and managerial ones. The Bloomsbury group thus viewed their lifestyle in terms of ascetics, not morality, and they called their, quote, liberated, unquote, homosexuality, quote, the higher sodomy, unquote. For them, morality was not a problem because it was irrelevant. The influence of this circle is quite pervasive in our time. It affects our media, our legislative assemblies, and our courts. It turns the meaning of the First Amendment upside down. That document, instead of setting forth the independent sphere of religion so that it might better govern and inform public faith and morality, is now seen too often as the guarantee for every kind of immoralism and social disorder. The First Amendment was written to give freedom to the expression of religious and moral convictions in the civil sphere in terms of an historic faith that biblical religion constitutes an independent sphere. It has now become the prop of a philosophy which insists on the irrelevance of religion and morality to social order. 
The consequence of this religious and moral nihilism is constitutional nihilism. Judge Bork wrote also of the current, quote, privatization of morality, which requires the law of the community to practice moral relativism, unquote. It is this that leads to constitutional nihilism. Behind all this lies a moral nihilism. As a result of an emphasis on appearance which was strong in the Victorian era, people are now judged socially and aesthetically, not morally. A man may be homosexual, a dedicated adulterer, a dishonest dealer, or more, but unless there is a public scandal connected with him, he is acceptable if well-dressed, well-bathed, and aesthetically, quote, right, unquote, in his lifestyle, whereas a virtuous man is looked down on. This is the Bloomsbury tradition, although its roots go deeper. Until men recognize that law, morality, and religion are inseparable, and religion is basic to social order, our decay will continue. The privatization of morality is anti-biblical, and it leads to moral and social nihilism and death. March, 1985. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushby. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown us by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. Christ has set you free, set you free.